Father, we give you thanks for your faithful love and care for us. We thank you, Lord, that you are our Savior and Redeemer and friend. Thank you, Father, that you are the one who hears us. Though we are sinful men and women, Lord, we confess to you that we are sinful men and women, yet we claim the righteousness of Jesus because he is the one whose blood forgives us of our sins. He is the one whose righteousness clothes us. He is the one who makes us able to stand in your presence. And it's because of him that we can now ask that you would illumine the reading and preaching of your word, Lord that you would make us alive to Christ, that we might meet with you and that you might show yourself to us existentially as you renew your covenant of love with us sinners whom you have forgiven, whom you have washed, whom you have cleansed, and whom you have loved. We pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Ernest Gordon was captured by the Japanese during the Second World War and forced as a POW to live in an internment camp tasked with building the Burma to, the Siam to Burma Railroad. And during the construction of that railroad, over 80,000 prisoners died from disease, they died from malnutrition, they died from human cruelty. If you could steal another internee's food, you stole it. If you could steal his clothes, you stole it. If you could get his boots, you took his boots. If you could rob him of his blanket, you robbed him of his blanket. You did what you had to do to make sure that you were one of the few that was going to make it out alive. Everyone was in it for themselves. It was dog eat dog. If you had to kill someone to save your life, you would kill your fellow countrymen in a heartbeat. Every man for himself. It was a place of absolute darkness. But the worst of the darkness, the darkest place, was called the death house. The death house was where they put you when you were so sick that everyone knew you were going to die. The death house was a place of absolute darkness. There was no medical care. There was no palliative care. There was no food. There was no water. There was no comfort. And there was no hope. No one came back from the death house. The wails and the moans and the groans would, would emanate from the house all night long. It could be heard throughout the camp. Other prisoners would enter the death house only to steal the clothes off of men who were dying and who were no longer able to protect themselves. It was the darkest of the darkness. A place of no light, a place of no hope. This Advent season... We are looking with Christians around the globe and throughout the centuries at the darkness in which we live. The darkness of our own human condition. The darkness of human cruelty. The darkness of suffering that, that swirls about us all night and day. The darkness of the human heart. Of living in a fallen and cursed world. The darkness we see as we look toward our future. And as we consider that unique and peculiar hope that Christians have. Because Jesus came into the world and promised to return. Where do we find hope in the darkness? I'm going to read from the third chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. Uh, we're going to read the first 12 verses. You can follow along with me because this is Christ's Gospel. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he this is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord and make straight paths for him. 
John's clothes were made of camel's hair. He had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. That's the normal food of the desperately poor. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming, those are the religious leaders, coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't think that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hands. He'll clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the shaft with unquenchable fire. Where do we see hope? Well, where we don't see it is in our experience of darkness in this world. We don't see it in the lives we live. You look at all these people who are coming to John the Baptist for baptism. Why are they coming? Because they have sins to confess. They know that they've strayed. They know that they're normal, irreligious people who have come to realize that something is missing in their lives. They're realizing they've made some money, they've built some families, they've built a career, they've had some relationships, and it's not enough. They're experiencing the darkness. They realize there's something wrong with themselves. They realize that they've found themselves cut off from God, from the life of God. And so they're coming to John, knowing themselves to be dirty. No one needs to tell these people that they're a bunch of sinners. They got that. They're looking for grace. They're looking for God. They're looking to become clean because they know that they've been filled with jealousies and resentments and bitterness. They know that they've developed critical spirits. They know they're way too concerned about what other people think about them. They realize they haven't weighted God appropriately for who He is as God. They know they need to change. They want to reconnect with God. They know they're inconsistent. That's, that, they know their sin. And they're coming to God's prophet saying, will you baptize us? Will you make us, will you wash us and make us clean? But there are other people who have also shown up at the scene. Who is that? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests and the pastors and the theologians have all shown up at the scene in their bright, flowy, rich robes. They're looking down upon this unwashed rabble in absolute disgust. They can't stand John the Baptist. Everything he says is like fingernails on a chalkboard pointing out their inconsistencies and their failures. They've shown up and they're the worst of the bunch. I mean, some of you know what this was like. Some of you grew up in religious contexts, religious environments that were self-righteous, controlling, and oppressive. It's not a question of what denominational label was on the building. It could be any of them. It's something inside us all. This need to prove ourselves through what we do or through what we believe. To to then use that as a standard to look down on others and to judge them because my religion says I have to be one of the good people. 
And that means I have to minimize my own failings and be blind to them and, and hide them. And then I have to maximize all of your failings so that you'll look worse, so that I look better, so that I can be a good person. The kind of person God would want to bless. And it leaves us on this perpetual treadmill of trying to measure up, trying to prove ourselves to ourselves, prove ourselves to others. It's crippling. It's why religion doesn't help the situation. You say, Greg, I don't need your Jesus. I have a religion of my own. And the Bible says that's the problem. Religion doesn't help. There's irreligious unbelief, but then there's religious unbelief. And it can be worse because what religion can do is it can make us smug and self-righteous and self-confident and blind to the fact that my soul may be in danger. The worst darkness is when you can't see that you're in darkness. And so John responds with biblical sarcasm. It's a category we don't talk about much. He says, he sees the religious leaders. He says, well, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Meaning, oh, I see you decided to repent of your sins. They're not here to repent of sins. They're good people, you know. And, and there are all these people coming for baptism because they know they're dirty. They know they're unclean. They know they need to be washed by God Himself. So they're coming to His prophet because they know they're failures. And then the religious leaders show up and they don't understand that they need washing just as much as everyone else. Indeed, because they're religious leaders, they probably need it more. And so John is calling everyone, whether religious or irreligious, to, to not get on a performance treadmill. He, he's not, that's not what he's doing. What he's saying when he talks about repenting, he's saying, I want you to come home to God. He's saying, God, the creator, who actually exists, who's not just a discourse we've made up, God who exists beyond space and time, who, who accounts for everything that's been made in all of the universe, God who fuels a billion galaxies, a billion light years away, is also a God who comes and invites His errant creatures to come home. Come home into the arms of love. Come home into the grace. Come home into the life of God. To turn around and to come home. I read about a girl named Christina who had longed to leave her poor village in South America. She was discontent living in a home with only a pallet on the floor and a wash basin and a wood-burning stove. She dreamt of the bright lights of the city. She dreamt of the good life. And one morning, though she was young, she slipped away. She broke her mother's heart, but she she. She wanted to explore. She wanted to see the city. And knowing what life on the streets might be like for a young, attractive woman, Maria, her mother, hurriedly packed to go find her. On her way to the bus stop, she entered a drugstore. She took all the cash she had on hand. She went into a photo booth and she sat and made one after another, it, you know, multiple, multiple, multiple uh, black and white photos of herself. She cut them out and she packed them into her purse. And then she took the bus into the big city. She knew Christina would have no way of earning money. She knew that her daughter was too stubborn to give up. She knew that when pride and hunger joined together, a human will do things that before might have been unthinkable. And knowing this, she began her search. She combed through the bars and the hotels, through the nightclubs, any place with a reputation for having a bad reputation, any place with a reputation for vice. 
She went to the mall and at each place she reached into her purse and she took out a photograph of herself and taped it to a bathroom mirror or tacked it to a hotel bulletin board. She fastened it to the corner inside a phone booth and on the back of every single photo she wrote a note to her daughter. It wasn't long before the money and the photographs ran out and Maria had to go home to her village. She hopped on a bus and wept in the smell of diesel fumes as she began the long journey back. It was just a few weeks later that young Christina descended the hotel stairwell and her face was tired. Her brown eyes no longer danced with youth but spoke of pain and they spoke of her fear. Her laughter had been broken. Her dream had become a nightmare. A thousand times over, she had longed to trade these countless beds for her secure little pallet in her home village. Yet that village was in too many ways too far away. And she, But as she reached the bottom of a stairwell, her eyes noticed a familiar face. She looked again. And there on the lobby mirror was a picture of her mother. Christina's eyes burned. Her throat tightened as she walked across the room and removed the small photograph. And written on the back was this invitation, whatever you have done, whatever you have become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. And that's what she did. And that's the voice of God to us saying, please come home. Home. That's the call to repentance, to go back to the God who is filled with love and mercy and compassion. An invitation to go back to the one who is infinite, the one who made us, the one who can be reconciled with us through his own grace. It's an invitation to come home and it's all that we've got because there is no ultimate hope in a world filled with darkness unless God himself steps into it. We see this world of darkness. And yet we also see something else. We see a glimmer here of light. And yet it is a glimmer of light of judgment. It's not what we would expect. You know, we expect baby mangers. We expect expect cute animals. We expect ginormous Christmas wreaths. It's perplexing when we read what John the Baptist actually says. He is the central figure in the liturgical tradition uh, of the Christian West, the central figure in the Advent season. And yet the Jesus that John is pointing us to is not Jesus cute and cuddly in the manger. The Jesus that he's pointing us to is Jesus who is coming again to judge the nations. You know, he's preparing the way not for Christ's first advent, but for his second advent. Fleming Rutledge is a a theologian, and she writes this. She writes, there is very little in John's character or his history to appeal to the modern sensibility. If people today think of him at all, it is usually as a head on a platter, quite literally. I have preached about him during Advent, she writes, for 21 years, yet I find him each year to be more uncanny and intractable than ever. After 2,000 years, he still stands there, irreducibly strange, gaunt, unruly, lonely, refractory, utterly out of sync with his age or our age or any age. Even Elijah is positively lovable and cuddly in comparison to John the Baptist. 
John's character, she writes, however, was never the central focus, even for the early church. Though his person is remarkable by any standard, it is not his person that marks him out, but his role. No, not even his role. We would more accurately say his location. In order to locate John, you have to go back to the Hebrew scriptures, to the famous quote from the prophet Malachi, who said, Surely a day is coming that will burn like a furnace, says the Lord Almighty. Behold, I'll send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Behold, I'll send Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. You see, the Hebrew uh, prophets foretold a day when a prophet like Elijah would come in order to prepare the way for the coming age. And the main thing you have to understand about John the Baptist, based upon how he's described here, is the important thing about his, his, is his location. And his location is this. The next guy that comes is God. And when God comes, heads are going to roll. Judgment will fall, and yet in that judgment will be salvation. And so John is announcing Jesus, not as a baby, but as a returning king, to bring judgment and you look at him i mean he says to the pastors you brood of vipers who warned you to flee the coming wrath verse 10 he says the axe is already at the root of the tree and every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire i mean he's talking about judgment day and then verse 12 he says of jesus that his winnowing fork is in his hand and he'll clear his threshing floor he'll gather the wheat into his barn, and he'll burn the shaft with unquenchable fire, end quote. You know, this is separating wheat to be saved from shaft to be destroyed. This is not the flanograph Jesus. This is not the cute children's picture of Jesus holding the lamb with his blonde curls, the Jesus, not the lamb. Uh, you know, John is pointing us forward to the second coming, to a day in which evil and hate and cruelty and injustice of this present age will be doomed because God in the flesh will come. The Lord himself is on the move. You say, okay, Greg, now how is this message of judgment good news? I mean, we Christians, for those of us who have signed up for this, you know, our first membership vow, even when I joined this church 25 years ago, my first membership vow was that I promised that I'm a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope, save in his sovereign mercy. I promised to be a sinner, and it's the only promise I've actually kept very well. So how could judgment be good news? And yet, I think to understand it, one has to look from the perspective of the victims of human history because justice is about God's mercy toward victims injustice and evil will not have the last word I mean what do you say to the victim of abuse what do you say to the battered spouse what do you say to nine million victims of the Nazi Holocaust what do you say to people murdered brutally by the Islamic State what do you say to the victims of the Orlando nightclub shooting in 2016? What do you say to all those throughout history who have been subjected to utter humiliation, to those who have been subject to degradation, to cruelty, to injustice? Is it any surprise that the civilization that has alone in history found the notion of a judgmental God to be distasteful? The, 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 the civilization that rolls its eyes at it is, is the civilization made up of those countries and those societies who tend to send their armies to other people's countries to fight on their land. 
the wealthy countries, the privileged, those who have had it relatively easy? Is it any surprise these are the societies that find the notion of a God who judges to be uh, inappropriate or regressive? Uh, you know, this notion of a God who would never judge anybody has not taken hold among the victims of the world. It has not taken hold among the world's poor. It has not taken hold among the world's marginalized. It has not taken hold among those who have been stripped of their rights and abused, those who have watched their sons and daughters be degraded before their eyes. Those are people who still believe in a God who actually will judge. And because to those people, the notion of judgment is a notion of justice. The conviction that evil does not get the last word. The notion that good will finally triumph over cruelty and evil and hate. The thought that the perpetrators will actually be held accountable for crimes against the weak, against the poor, against the marginalized of the world. Uh, the notion of God being a righteous judge is the notion of a God for them being good. And perhaps we Westerners ought to humble ourselves to learn from those who have truly experienced the worst of the suffering of this life and experienced it to the fullest. Perhaps they have much to teach us about God because the backbone of hope for the oppressed is the confidence that God is going to take care of it, that God is going to either judge the oppressor with wrath or he is going to bring the oppressor to repentance and bring about a, 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 a change either way. Either way, God gets the last word. Either way, goodness wins. You'll go back to me to a scene from the closing year or so of the Second World War. It's a French village in 1944. For four years, they have been subject to the cruelty, the oppression, the atrocities of Nazi occupiers. The Nazis have, have guards have called the entire village to the center of the town square where they have tied up to a post a young teenage boy who has been accused of collaborating with the resistance against uh, the Nazi regime, uh, his grandmother who raised him is sitting there. She is weeping. She is begging. She is pleading for his life. But there is no hope. They're beating the kid. They're kicking him. They're smacking him. One of them is getting his luger out. He's cocking it. He's getting ready to execute him as they hear the sound of heavy machinery in the distance. And as they look up, cresting the hill above the town, they see a mechanized division of American tanks. The Nazis begin to freak out. They're getting in their, 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 their vehicles. They're trying to go away as an American tank hits the vehicle, strikes it, and destroys everybody inside of it. The grandmother falls to the ground weeping. She's hugging her grandson whose life has been spared. The villagers are untying him. There's cheer. There's joy. The question is, is it a picture of judgment or is it a picture of salvation? And the only right answer is yes. And that's the vision that John the Baptist is giving. Love and justice are two sides of the same coin. Salvation and condemnation are two sides of the same thing. When Jesus shows up, he says, that's what's going to happen. The only difference is which side of the coin you're on. Scott Saul says it this way. He says, we need a God who gets angry. We need a God who will protect his kids, who will once and for all remove the bullies and the perpetrators of evil from his playground. Those who cannot or will not appreciate this have likely enjoyed a sheltered life and are therefore naive about the emotional impact of oppression, cruelty, and injustice. And think about that. Would you want abusers in heaven with your grandchildren? Would you want 
unchanged people, unrepentant people, cruel people? Do you want hatred in the kingdom of heaven? The Bible says there, there has to be a separation. Describes it as the sheep going toward God and the goats separated out to go their own way. We going to God, shaft to destruction. Uh, it's, a, it's a mercy to the sheep to protect them from evil, to protect them from harm. And yet it's not just the victims that see mercy in this. Because God has a heart of mercy toward aggressors as well. How can a loving God's anger toward them be filled with love? How can you truly be angry at somebody out of love? Some of you understand this. Becky Pippert says it this way. She writes, we tend to be taken aback by the thought that God could be angry. How can a deity who is perfect and loving ever be angry? We take pride in our tolerance of the excesses of others. And so what is God's problem? But love detests what destroys the beloved, she writes. Real love stands against the deception, against the lie, against the sin that destroys the beloved. Nearly a century ago, she writes, theologian E.H. Glyphert wrote, human love here offers a true analogy. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates in him the drunkard, the liar, the traitor. Anger is not the opposite of love. Hate is the opposite of love. And the final form of hate he writes, is indifference. And Jesus is not indifferent. In His love, He is driven to judge, even to condemn. His heart is so filled with love and compassion toward victims that He can't allow evil and injustice to stand forever. He will bring a final resolution, yet His heart is so filled with love and compassion toward perpetrators that He warns us here and now through John to come to Him, to come home to the God who loves us, to come home into the reconciliation with the love and the light that is Jesus to allow His grace to redeem us, to wash us, and ultimately to change us. And in this lies our hope of salvation because Jesus promises He's going to make everything right. John describes it in verse 2 of the passage by saying the kingdom of heaven is near. John is pointing us beyond himself to the one who comes after him because everybody knew that the one who comes after John the Baptist is himself God. To know that Jesus is going to return, that He's going to wipe every tear from your eyes, what difference does it make to know that Jesus is going to come back to judge and to save does that promise of Christ remove evil and injustice from the world? No, it does not. Not right now. Not in this era. Not to the degree that we might hope. But Fleming Rutledge says this. She says, a group of hostages who know that the SWAT team is on its way is a very different group from the one that has no hope. Because Jesus gives us a glimmer of light a promise that light's coming, that He's going to dispel the darkness, the kingdom of heaven is coming. And what that gives us is what theologians call Christian hope. It's hope that's not grounded in this present life. There are things about me that will not likely change in this life. I am helplessly broken, helplessly damaged, relationships around me that may never be healed this side of the resurrection. But Jesus promises, I am coming, and when I do, I will wipe every tear from your eyes. There will be no more sickness, no more disease, no more death, and I will make everything new. It's only in Jesus that we find the meaning that suffering can't rob from you 
a satisfaction that's not based on your circumstances, an identity that's not fragile and cannot be robbed of you, a way to face the future and to face death itself unafraid with peace, confidence, and poise because Jesus is on the move. He's coming to make it all right. And you look at the kind of people He chooses. I mean, look at the motley crew that's come to John the Baptist for baptism. You know, these people, they're not a lot of wealthy and famous people in this group. These are not the polished and the proud. These people are Jesus' family. These are peasants and poor people and people with problems, adulterers and swindlers and tax collectors and prostitutes and people who've lied to their spouses and robbed their employers, people who've gossiped about their frenemies. These are people with addictions and psychiatric problems and body image issues and sexual sins, people who are publicly identifying themselves as big, shameful sinners and saying, John, we need the Lord to wash us and make us clean. That's, you look, I got a picture. Can we get that first slide? There are only a few of these. This is my picture of the church. Um, if you've ever watched, you know, uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer Christmas special, you know this is which island? See, you know your liturgical responses. I think some of you, a lot of you were raised Roman Catholic. That's probably it. But, you know, you got this island, and everybody on it's defective. You know, I mean, you got the train where the caboose has square wheels. You got the elephant that's spotted. You got the really cool water pistol, but it only shoots jelly. You got the cowboy, but he rides an ostrich. You got, and then you got Charlie. Uh, Charlie is the guy inside the box, uh, really effeminate, guards the island. Uh, and, you know, you go up to him. They go up to him and say, oh, I bet I know who you are. You're probably named Jack. And he says, no. I'm named Charlie. <laughs> nobody wants a Charlie in the box. It's the toys that nobody wants. It's like if you go to Home Depot and, and you want a wreath for your house and the only one they have is 15 feet wide. And you think, who would want a 15 foot wide wreath on their door? And it's like, who would want that in their house? And Jesus says, I want it in my house. You know, it's the island of misfit toys. Because that's God's heart. John the Baptist says in verse 9, I tell you, out of these rocks, God can raise up children of Abraham. That's because the heart of God is a heart of goodness toward the marginalized and the bruised and the broken and the abused that beats with warmth and love and affection and compassion for the damaged and those who know themselves to have been bruised and broken by the fall. A God who identifies with the weak, with the needy, and with sinners in need of grace. It's a heart of compassion toward those that suffer in this life. We got another slide. Let's get that next one up. Um, this is a, a Vinicio Riva um, as a child. This was about 40, 45 years ago. Uh, Vinicio has a rare disease called neurofibromatosis. Uh, I think I got that right. And so today he sits open-mouthed as he's stared at with thinly veiled disgust. We got a modern photo of him. Um, he is covered with hundreds of boils and people are afraid that they might make him sick too. And so he was diagnosed when he was 15 years old. These tumors, they swell and they itch. Often his, his undershirt is often soaked with blood that'll ooze out of some of the sores. It's a genetic disease. It's not contagious, but he remembers one time in Vicenza boarding a bus and He's, because he gets boils on the bottom of his feet, he desperately wanted to sit down. He began to sit down, and a man next to him pushed him aside and said, No, don't sit next to me. And everyone on that bus, it was a crowded bus, everyone heard the exchange, and no one said a thing. 
No one did anything because people are afraid of him. They keep their distance. Um, in November of 2013, Venetia's aunt, however, wanted to go to the Vatican to see this new pope uh, at his weekly audience. And so um, he was in his wheelchair, so he just kind of wheeled up behind her as she waited to, to see uh, Pope Francis. And upon reaching the crowd, it's interesting, Francis, some of you may have seen this on the news a few years ago, Francis did something remarkable. He walked up to him, he touched him, he hugged him, he embraced him tightly. He had never been embraced in his life. He didn't say a word. He just held him and prayed for him and loved him. Friends, you and I are Venetio Riva. And Jesus is coming to you right now to embrace you. Boils maybe only you know about, but he's embracing you and loving you and interceding for you. That's what he does. That's the kind of people he chooses. A God who chooses the foolish things of this world to shame those that are wise. Jesus is the light of the darkness. Jesus is the one who died for us when we were his enemies. He's the one who rose in order to, to bring light into the darkness. Back to the POW camp. Ernest Gordon forced to live in this internment camp building the Siam to Burma Railroad. He watched the death. He saw the cruelty around him. He felt it within him as he hated his fellow prisoners. The worst cruelty was that inflicted by each other. It was a brutal culture. You stole from the living and you stole from the dying. And if you had to kill someone, you did it until something happened. It was the day they brought in a labor detail and they counted out the shovels and found that a shovel had been found missing. The Japanese guards lined up the men. They demanded that the culprit confess. And when no one did, a guard raised his gun and he shot the first prisoner in line. And then he went to the next with the intention of shooting everyone until someone confessed. It was at that point that a young enlisted man stepped out of line and said, I took the shovel. The guard took the butt of his gun. He cracked open his skull. He didn't survive. Later that day, they recounted the shovels. They discovered there was not a shovel missing after all. And instantly they all realized what had happened. A young man had stepped out of line and took it for everyone else so that everyone else might live. Gordon says it changed the whole camp. The whole culture of the place shifted almost overnight. Gordon himself found himself suffering from a very, very serious case of malaria and dysentery. And as he declined, the guards put him in the death house to die. But other prisoners came into the death house not to steal his clothes, but they got him and they brought him back into the barrack. They massaged his atrophied muscles. They cleaned up his filth. They shared their own meager rations of food and water with him and he survived. And it's the spirit of the place that began to pervade the whole camp, a spirit of love because Ernest Gordon can say that his best taste of heaven that he ever experienced was in the hell 
and darkness of that labor camp because light had come in and invaded the darkness. The darkness did not go away. 80,000 people died there. They died of malaria and dysentery and overwork and fatigue and starvation. But in the midst of the darkness, they saw a glimmer of light, a glimmer of life because somebody, a young man, stepped out of line to take what all the rest of us were going to get. And friends, that is what Jesus Christ came into the world to do. He did it for you. He stepped out of line. He took the brunt so that you could have life and so that light could then flood you as the family of God, bringing the welcome of Jesus to this city. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do give you thanks. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your love. We thank you, Lord, for giving us your Son. And so we consecrate to you the elements on this table that you administer the good news to us that we might walk in your light. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.